Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. One of the problems with podcasting is you can't hear your listeners, don't you reckon? Like, I wonder if there was a way that we could fill that awkward silence. It makes me wonder, what are they going to do when the footy goes back and we have no crowds? (laughs) Guys, can we get on with it? Let's get on with the show. Minus 22 days, 9 hours, 10 minutes, and counting. AFL HQ, this is Rubber Ducky. Start the AFLM 2020 sequence. Staggered return to training? Check. Socially distant goal celebrations? Check. Bonking ban? Roger that. Pies and quiches socially distanced? Check. Quarantine hubs? Check. ISO hairstyles? Check. Relocation to porpoise spit. Check. No spitting. Industrial strength hand sanitizer. Check. No looking hands or balls. Roger that. Locked and loaded. We are go for launch. AFLM season 2020. I repeat, we are go for launch. <laughs> well, <laughs> welcome. How old are we? <laughs> well, welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Kate Sear. I am sitting in the commander's chair this week, ably assisted by my co-pilots. It's been a huge week with news that the AFL men's competition is going to be back on the 11th of June. We're going to take you through all the ins and outs of how it will work, discuss the controversy over the non-return of the AFLW, tell you what we've been reading, watching and listening to in ISO and a whole lot more. But before we get into it, I'm going to let my co-pilots, my football-loving <laughs> sisters, introduce themselves. Uh, Major Tom here. <laughs> AKA Nicole Hayes. <laughs> Hi, it's Lucy Race here. Hello, it's Tess Armstrong over here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's great to be. It's great to be back. <laughs> oh, we make ourselves laugh every week, don't we? Don't we? 
Well, look, what a joy it is to be back in the studio. As I said, the huge news this week that the AFL-M is returning three weeks and one day from today. Nicole, do you want to take us through the, the announcement from Gil McLaughlin this week of exactly how this quite different looking season is going to play out? In the initial stages, we're going to have the training can start and they're in groups of eight as a maximum. So, you know, unlike our restrictions, they are a little bit different. They're a lot tighter. He's talked about a social licence. So they're prepared, the players prepared to do a little bit more to take those extra restrictions just so the game can go on. Full contact starts next week on the 25th. But basically, the players can't surf, they can't golf, they can't, bonk. you know, have visitors oh. in their homes. <laughs> Special visitors. No, no bonking, um, no spitting. But yeah, they can actually like take their kids to childcare or whatever. But there are a lot of limitations that we don't have about visitors to their home and just about socialising outside of their group. And we know they're taking it seriously. The Tigers already sent home Shane Edwards from training because he had a stomach complaint. So that's another thing too. Any player that's not well can't participate in training. So they're asking a lot of the players, but it's it's great to see them taking it seriously. It's interesting that uh, we don't have a fixture yet and that will come out over the next week, I would imagine. But already we can see the need for flexibility because we were looking at the South Australian teams having to move to the Gold Coast into that hub next week before they could do any full contact training. But that restriction's been lifted late yesterday so Mm. um, that might change things around so they potentially won't need to go to the Gold Coast until round two or potentially round three. And we don't know what the season is going to look like so I know that there is a, a there's a bit of anxiety in the community I mean I as you guys know I work in talkback radio and people aren't thrilled that the AFL is coming back when they're not allowed to do certain things that the players are allowed to do certain things one example is um, a talkback caller we had last week called Serena her dad is in a hospital in Tasmania he is 85 he has been testing positive every single day for COVID nine of the 11 people in his ward have died she can't get to Tasmania. She can't travel across any borders to see him. But then she hears that players are going to all get tested every day and they can travel around the country. So I get that. But I also, hearing from clubs, they do see themselves as providing entertainment and something normal for people and part of people's routines. And a massive footy fan part of me can't wait to get that back, to have something to watch. I'm like... I'm running low on watching Splash over and over again. I need something else to watch in my life. I'm kind of torn. I think it's just such a tricky thing that there isn't just hard and fast rules and there kind of can't be. And I understand people's frustration, but industries have to try and find a way to get back to work in some shape or form. And, you know, here we're talking about football specifically, but, you know, this is something that a lot of industries are looking at. In terms of the economic recovery we, we we actually need to do this and it's important if we want to try and have these industries continue to find a way through of course as a footy fan I'm really glad that footy's back in in many respects and I can't wait to see how it how it goes I am unsure how, how it's going to feel mm. watching footy without crowds uh, we saw in round one of the AFL men's competition how bizarre Empty. that was yeah. and how it to me it was just a totally different experience and I do wonder how that'll go but I also have great sympathy for people like Serena f- for whom sport might feel way down the list of priorities mm. and and a great privilege uh, one of the things we've heard this week is that family members can join the players 
players uh, on the road and that that will be paid for by the AFL, which I think is a, an important development and one that obviously a lot of the players pushed for. And Lucy, you mentioned that the fixture uh, will come out in the next few days, but it's also, I think, going to be released in rolling blocks of four to six weeks so that the AFL is able to be sort of flexible and adaptable to circumstance and work with whatever grounds are available and however works best. And one of the things that has been a big question mark has been about memberships. And um, although the clubs have still not announced how the membership's going to look going forward, the AFL members have come up with a plan and there are three options. Um, One is just maintain as it is. The other option is the absentee membership, which involves a refund, but you're basically on hold for the year. And so next year you continue on. If you keep your membership as it is, it means you get a 30% discount on membership next year. And there are also some other packages for supporters for extra games and for like concessions at at the games. Uh, The final option is the full refund and cancellation, which which basically means that's it. You're cut off. I think that will be a very similar model that you'll see clubs kind of take on. It allows for all those different variations and and for those people who do need their money back, it is that option. Well, heaps of uh, stuff to unpack out of this big announcement and there's been a lot of discussion about it during the week. Are you ready to roll up your sleeves and malay ladies? Always. Ready to go. Okay. (laughs) Roger that. Well, let's let's talk about the fallout from uh, or some of the discussion that's unfolded this week as this announcement was made. There's been a lot of interesting stuff in the media, first of all, Lucy. Uh, and what caught your eye this week? As the AFL was um, talking about the return of the men's season and those plans were being revealed, we did see a number of people, fans particularly, frustrated that there was no mention of finishing the women's season. You know, it's it's such a tough one, but unfortunately... You just can't retrofit something for a pandemic. You know, the barriers to finishing the AFLW season are absolutely there because of the differences in paying conditions. And most notably, the fact that the AFLW players aren't full-time athletes yet. Contracts have expired, jobs have started, leaves been used. You do, there's just no way practically that you could finish those last rounds of the season. And yeah, it's really frustrating and it's part of an ongoing conversation. There's what we want and there's what we're aiming for and there's a reality of where we are right now and where we are I think is at a place where we actually really need the men's season to restart and we need it to be as financially successful as possible because that's the part of the business that funds a lot of the other things that we need to see. I totally agree with you, Lucy, and I know that a lot of the clubs agree with that, right? They say if you get footy on the ground, just get any footy going, you reignite the industry and then you're away and then other things can follow. And I completely agree that obviously it is incredibly sad and frustrating that we didn't get a finale to the 2020 Mm. season because it was an awesome season and we had all of these teams vying to be the grand final. It could have been fantastic, but it's not. I think that every single time a conversation is had about AFL-M, I think what people would love to hear is AFLW mentioned. Absolutely. And, you know, just on that, Tess, I think one of the things that I found really frustrating is about all levels of sport when, you know, we've talked about returning to play. And I'm thinking specifically about state leagues at the moment. We're starting to see information, say, about the VFL and that there's a number of clubs have been meeting with the AFL to talk about how that might start. But we're not seeing any news about the VFLW. And I think what is really frustrating for sports fans is when there's is just basically this black hole when it mm. comes to women's sport and there's just not even there's mm. no information coming out about what 
the plans are. All that work, it feels like has been erased almost and, and isn't factoring into the conversation. And I think the media conversation broadly around sport has been problematic of late. Uh, <laughs> I, and I understand, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're, we're a football show without football. It's a real challenge to come up with content. But I do feel like um, some outlets have stretched themselves beyond recognition. Um, so Fox Footy announced that the AFL's travel rule change would create a nightmare schedule for away teams this season and identified one cat superstar who's set to cop it in particular who would suffer the most. And then there's a very big photo of Patrick Dangerfield. Dangerfield responded quite quickly with his own tweet saying that he couldn't give a swear about the travel, but thanks for the clickbait tag. Looking forward to the abuse that follows, which is fairly pointed and there is no part of that um, article that actually asked Patrick Dangerfield his opinion on the travel, (laughs) even though it makes quite uh, broad assessments of it. Fox Footy then recounted, came back and said, basically reported on Patrick Dangerfield's tweet. And so this whole kind <laughs> of circular irony. conversation without actually talking to Dangerfield directly, you know, Patrick Dangerfield is hit back at AFL Legends concerned for the star's durability. Like It's just, mm. it's actually becoming a, a, like a satire of itself. Well, while we're talking about that, can I bring up another one? Mm. On, over the weekend, I don't know whether you saw this, but Fiona Byrne, who is the gossip queen in the Herald Sun, wrote an article about the Brownlow, and I'm going to quote her here. She said, In what will send shockwaves through the AFL's high-profile WAG community, the Brownlow medal as a red carpet gala and fashion extravaganza is expected to be yet another COVID-19 casualty. And in doing so, in writing an article like that, she thus perpetuates a one-dimensional representation of those partners, manages to paint them in a vapid and selfish light, and she also opens them up for that kind of clickbait abuse. And Mm -hmm. if you go through the comments, that's the kind of thing that you see there. For a start, stop saying wag. Just Mm -hmm. stop saying it. Stop writing articles that open up a free-for-all in the comments. And let's start talking about people authentically. So there are certain elements of the media that only ever talk about the partners of AFLM players as either baggage or baubles. Like, where are we going to put them in the hubs and can they dress up for the red carpet? I think it's, you know, refreshing that we haven't seen that in the AFLW. I don't know whether that's because people don't know how to talk about the partners of the women's players, but let's use that as a bit of a model. And let's also kind of acknowledge the fact that the partners of the men's players have you know, they're, they're mm. been affected as much as anybody else. And I know that the men get paid a lot of money and that sometimes muddies the waters. But, you know, they've been asked to be very flexible and to have very, you know, different, their years are playing out in very different ways. And they've also, you know, watched a lot of people at football clubs who are, I imagine that they're close to losing their jobs. Let's talk about people as full people with agency. So we've had quite a few people reach out to us this week and ask us for our views on the fact that the AFL men's competition is returning and the AFL women's competition isn't. And somewhat predictably, calls for the return of the AFLW alongside the AFLM have turned into a bit of a comparative exercise, particularly on social media, about the apparent sort of value or worth of women's footy. That has degenerated predictably, I think, Mm -hmm. once again, into yet another opportunity to degrade the women's competition, but also to 
to degrade those uh, women who play the game itself. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately, this tendency to compare and trust. We've done it on this show ourselves, actually, over the years. I've certainly done it a lot, to compare women's footy to men's footy. And I've been thinking about this a lot, this tendency to compare and contrast things and and how we might try to understand it. Um, Recently, in my sort of day job in my work, I stumbled upon the work of a Belgian writer called Isabel Stengers, which has really helped shape my thinking on this. And uh, I just wanted to share it with our listeners at the risk of boring everybody (laughs) to death, because I do think it's a very valuable way for thinking about this process of comparison. Stengers um, has written a piece on comparison, and she makes the point, first of all, that it's sort of human nature to compare things all the time. She says that that's what we do. It's part of our logic and the way that we think about things. But she also makes the point that comparison is a deeply political process, and it's often deeply unfair. And what Stengers argues is that comparisons are often tainted in some way by what she calls foul play. So in the example of comparisons with between men and women, those comparisons are often made by men and, and tainted by sort of deeply entrenched ideas of sort of sexist ideas and so on. And what she also says is that processes of comparison, and this is a key point, I think, for footy, are often undertaken from the perspective of the powerful group, the dominant group. She says no comparison is legitimate if the parties compared cannot each present their own version of what the comparison is about and each must be able to resist the imposition of irrelevant criteria. In other words, comparison must not be unilateral and especially must not be conducted in the language of just one of the parties. And I think we see that playing out in footy all the time, including in footy media, to be to be frank. So much of footy media is dominated by former players who are usually white men who express their views about the value or worth of, of women's footy and women's sport. The conversation is just over and over again conducted in the language of just one of the parties. What Stengers ends up saying is that it's possible for us to compare. We can, we can still engage in these processes of comparison, but that it needs to be done differently. And there's a wonderfully vivid quote from her, which I just love, which I think is so so relevant, especially to conversations that, that happen on social media that we all get engaged in and a lot of our listeners get engaged in. She says, those you address must be empowered to evaluate the relevance of your interest, to agree or refuse to answer, and even to spit in your human to human face. And I think that really beautifully... No spitting. No spitting <laughs> yes, or metaphorically. Spitting. Metaphorically spitting. But I think that really beautiful, beautifully captures something that we've been grappling with for a long time. And I, that's why I wanted to share it with, with you all, because I think it speaks to what we've been trying to achieve with this show. And that is that we come from a position of inherent discomfort about the way that comparisons are made, who undertakes these comparisons, what criteria are used to evaluate the apparent value of women and also women's sport. And this is a context where for forever these comparisons have been made or conducted in the language of just one of the parties. And so ultimately Stengers concludes with a lesson that I think is really helpful for, for us and that I'd like to hold on to as we go forward. And that is that comparison's only legitimate if people who are engaging in comparison are, are willing to do so as equals. And that includes listening to, to other parties, other perspectives as equals and negotiating. As I said, that really resonates with me because I think so many pundits and pundits and writers and commentators in our game engage in these unilateral comparisons and I really like the idea I embrace this idea of metaphorically spitting in their face and simply <laughs> refusing to engage if in it if it continues to be played on on only one party's terms it sounds like <laughs> 
Thanks, Tess. Yeah. That notion of, of contest and comparison has come up a lot lately, especially in the condition of the pandemic, in the context of art versus sport, which apparently has to be a thing. It has to be a contest. <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other you have to pick. And I understand at the moment it is has largely come out of the fact that there are industries that have devastated by this pandemic. The arts in particular has seems to have suffered, you know, in terms of numbers significantly more. And, you know, artists are quite used to uncertainty and not knowing where our next paycheck comes from. The the concept of the gig economy came from the arts. I mean, that's where it started. But in particular, where it comes to grants and, and support from government and the rest of it, artists also started losing gigs way before everybody else. Back in January and February, these were being cancelled. So there is definitely a reason for this concern that they have to artists and and the arts industry has to kind of protect their patch a bit but I feel like it's an artificial construct it is an unnatural and unnecessary notion of contest that you have to that one has to lose in order for the other to win you know there are limited funds and I understand all of that but the fact is that these industries really supplement and complement each other and that they have far more in common than they have indifference. If you think about the language around sport and the language around art, you know, there's theatres and there's arenas and there's narratives and there's story. And in this show in particular, so much of what we do is informed by the different parts of culture, including our art and the, the things that matter to us. And the idea that we somehow have to choose. It's really disappointing and really frustrating. I hope that the conversation can get a little bit more sophisticated and that we don't, it doesn't have to reinforce those stereotypes of art being exclusive and elite versus sport being sort of for bogans or for anti-intellectual, which is a stereotype that exists out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Speaking of bogans, thanks, Nick, for going to me. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you raised this. I I would estimate that working at the ABC, I think 98% of my life is dealing with complaints. Also, I'm just going to put it out on the record, I have no control over the news bulletins at all, but feel free to complain to me anyway. But they (laughs) called to it back and they complained that the end of the news ends with a sports update. Why doesn't the end of the news have an arts update? And I hear that argument all the time. And I find that super interesting. One, because I don't know why the news bulletins have always ended with a sports update. It has always made me think about how I interact with the two great loves, arts and sport. I love them both equally. No Mm. favourite children. But one of them I interact with in a very personal way. The other I interact with in a mass way. So when I go to the football, one of the things I love about it is that if I'm in the MCG with 70 plus thousand people, we're all having a shared experience together. And some people aren't having the same experience as me, but we're having a shared experience. If I listen to a song, I, I find meaning in that in a personal way. And I just, I have a completely different experience with both of them. And when I traveled around the States, which I did quite a bit, the way in which sports people are over there, jocks and the arts crowds are completely separate. I reject that entirely and growing up in Melbourne and Victoria that is just not that is not who we are we're we're a city where you can be talking about a band at the football and vice versa like it's that's a great bit of it I I think it's interesting that you see the sort of artistic expression that is being or at least the engagement with arts as being a little bit more personal I I find that my artistic and sporting experience and my engagement with it are both individual Mm. and then community. When you think about how much it is, how strongly you respond to a book or a movie, and Kate, we had a whole conversation about Lars and the Real Girl, how (laughs) important it is that after you've had your personal experience, if you have watched on your own or if it's a book that you've read, how important it is to engage with others and to Mm. talk about it with others. And it becomes much more of a community thing, book clubs. And there's also the fact that a lot of arts are actually about performance and spectacle and so they are a group thing. Mm. But in the same way that footy, I love the experience of being in a crowd, but also I love that 
moment when you wake up in the morning after you've won a premiership and you get that little quiet, private Mm. moment of joy that you've done this great thing. Mm. I think one of the things that's really tricky is that often in the arts, you know, everyone's kind of, it's quite diverse, which is great, but that can cover so many different forms of expression Mm -hmm. you don't have one organizing body and neither should you really because Mm -hmm. you don't want to kind of homogenize everything so when we talk about sport we're often talking about the big sports that have a big administrative kind of umbrella that looks after them so you can have a conversation about the NRL or the AFL or Cricket Australia or all of those big sporting bodies and that's very different to the there are a lot of challenges in community sport and in individual sports and sports that aren't the big three or four, you know, saying basketball, we've seen, we've lost Illawarra. There's a, a whole team's just folded this week. And while I understand that people go, well, sport gets everything, some sports get everything yeah, and that's some and, and that's just at the top level. It's, you know, there's still a lot of challenges, I think, out there in community sport. Well, what's interesting to me too is the meaning that often gets imposed on sport from those who might not watch sport and then the meaning that gets imposed on art. And as you were saying, Nick, it's it's very, to me, very artificial. It's a really artificial construct. You know, I think about my favourite time ever watching footy is 2007 and 2008 when Hawthorne made a resurgence and it coincided with me the last couple of years of me doing my PhD which I found a very stressful experience and being able to go to the footy and kind of see the culmination of my team Hawthorne's performance over a number of years see it culminate in them winning in the grand final in 2008 about the same time that I submitted my PhD which was a personal achievement for me (laughs) you know not quite on the same level perhaps as Hawthorne winning the flag but you know those two things (laughs) happen crossed over in my mind and I extracted meaning from it that was very valuable and important to me and I can't separate those two periods of time out from one another. Well, you think about the way that people responded to episode nine of The Last Dance and I don't know whether you've seen it yet, but it focuses on Steve Kerr and I had the same response watching that episode that I've had watching movies or reading books or seeing particular musicals mm. it's there's an incredible story arc um an incredible yep. story in there that brought out very similar emotions and a documentary like the last dance it proves what we're saying it's a, it's about the story right a, a good story is a good story in no matter what form and like michael jordan's story if you don't care about sport you probably aren't as interested in watching highlights of him on youtube but if you see his story and the cultural impact that he had and you watch steve kerr's story or you find out about megan rapino but you don't really care about football then you are able to insert yourself with someone and then the the sport has meaning the games have meaning and that's the thing it is always about storytelling ultimately that is what matters to us and it allows both sport, arts and, and all of the crossover in between allows us to express the full range of human emotion. It allows us to see the full capacity of humanity and, and us at our worst and our best and, and all of our in-betweens and, and so it's unfortunate and unnecessary and I hope we get to a point where we mm-hmm. don't have to keep drawing these comparisons and trade one off for the other. Well, they also cross over in more than one way and you, you flagged it earlier, Nick, when you mentioned that great film, Lars and the Real Girl. <laughs> Uh, because we we saw a story this week out of out of Korea, the K League, where they they didn't they didn't have a crowd, and we're going to see that in the AFL as well. But what they had done is, in lieu of the 
crowd, they had placed a number of, shall we call them, personalised mannequins to to watch the game and later realised that those personalised mannequins were um, were blow-up dolls, sex dolls, and so that was an awkward moment. <laughs> but um, but hi to Lars and Bianca on that on that note. Love and if you Bianca. haven't seen Lars and the Real Girl, go Do see it. it. Sponsored by Lars and the Real Girl. <laughs> I'm Catherine Murphy and you're listening to the IG Sanctum. If all else had remained equal, we would have been gearing up for the Sir Doug Nichols round this week. A celebration of Indigenous culture, the main event would have been the Dreamtime at the G and we would have also seen all of those beautiful Indigenous jumpers that are designed by players and artists, family and friends and so much more. We hope that that will make a return some stage in 2020. One of the members of the Outer Sanctum, Rana Hussain, caught up with Tanya Hosh from the AFL. First of all, we're starting everything at the moment with just how are you? So how are you? <laughs> yeah, look, thanks, Rana. It's nice to speak with you too. I'm okay. This is my eighth week working from home in Adelaide, which is very unlike my usual schedule with my office in Adelaide House in Melbourne. But um, look, it's really nice to be home, to sleep in my own bed for a lot of time. You know, there's some loneliness to it. And obviously the whole industry is experiencing uncertainty. Yeah, I definitely would say I'm feeling some anxiety, but I'm sure I'm not alone there. Was there a bit of relief at first of not having to commute? Yeah, I mean, probably. But I mean, commuting has been part of my professional life for a long time, even before I was at the AFL. So to stop that suddenly without knowing when that might resume again, even if it's more restricted than normal, was a bit confronting and all felt a bit strange. But I actually think that one of the things that has helped me with this is that typically if I was going to call into a meeting remotely, I'd be the only one that's doing that that can sometimes make you feel like you're at a bit of a disadvantage and, you know, it is much harder if you're the only one. But now that everyone's in a similar situation, I feel like it's actually evened that out for me. So in some ways, the remote experience is a better one for me now than it would have been typically. Are you getting a sense of what, I guess there's no one in at headquarters, but what is the kind of general mood at the moment? You know, there's no denying it. It's It's been rough. You know, having to stand down such a large proportion of the workforce uh, was heartbreaking. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very close-knit community, as you know, Rana. Those of us that work in footy love our footy. To suddenly see that sort of ecosystem disassembled was a lot to absorb, um, particularly for those people who have had to be stood down. Um, so one of the things that uh, Katrina Hakenen and I, you know, focusing on is maintaining communication with those people who uh, cover similar portfolios of work to what we do in inclusion and social policy, just to keep them in the loop and just keep, you know, consulting and um, trying to let them know the sorts of things that we're doing Mm -hmm. Um, but I I think across the industry there's so much focus on getting games back because no matter what part of the industry you work in everyone's in a much better position if the game is strong we need footy back we need to support all of those people with key responsibilities in that area and um, I imagine you're a bit like me just missing watching Mm -hmm. footy being played as well. What did your work look like before this and, and how have you had to pivot? 
I mean, before this, there was a lot more face-to-face -face meetings, you know, some big projects that have now had to go on hold to some extent. The review of Rule 35 was sort of in the final stages of the report writing and developing recommendations. So that's all had to um, go on hold for the time being. So, yeah, I guess we were getting close to finalising all of that and we're looking forward to launching that report during Sir Doug Nichols' round, and now we don't know when we will get to celebrate that round. Um, so, of course, we're in the planning for the execution of Sir Doug Nichols' round, so that's also gone on hold. Um, so some of those really big things that my team's involved with have had to go on hold because they are um, very much related to the playing of the game. You know, now what we're thinking about is, okay, things are going to be different. How do we do what we can to uphold inclusion in whatever it is that does happen for the rest of this year? How do we make sure that those messages of the importance of inclusion and what I probably would refer to now as balance rather than diversity? Mm. Um, how do we try to keep things balanced in terms of who's involved in the delivery, who gets to give a perspective on a particular element, just uh, looking for those opportunities while people are very focused on game and execution and all of the big changes that have had to come into place because we haven't been playing. How do we make sure that we don't lose those important values that we've committed ourselves to? Because at a time like this, it would be really easy to put those to one side. One of the key messages that is important in my role is to make sure that we don't do um, make decisions um, without contemplating what impact that is going to have on things like inclusion and balance and how do we mitigate against that. As we've gone through time, it's always easy to do things that uh, make that better. So in whatever happens in the reshaping of football going forward in the near or even medium terms, there's still an important role for us to play in terms of uh, making sure that we do everything we can to enhance the opportunities for more inclusion. Is there something sort of specific um, that you're working on at the moment from your end of things with communities? Um, are there any initiatives specific to this moment going ahead? Uh, yeah, we're working on a sort of community education piece that will be able to go out on digital platforms. Because one of the things we, we do know from listening to the health experts is that this COVID epidemic is going to have a much longer risk profile in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, particularly remote communities, probably as we start to anticipate the relaxing of protocols across the country and every state and territory is dealing with that differently to their own needs. I think the reality is that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in more regional and remote locations, there's still um, a larger potential risk. And so I think that any community messaging that we can do that combines reinforcing of good practice around health protocols with football is going to have a, a long shelf life and hopefully mm -hmm. be relevant for some time. And we really want to leverage off the 
fantastic humour that blackfellas bring to lots of challenging situations. So hopefully it won't be too long before we release that. I'm excited and looking forward to that because we've managed to engage some really great talent from within football and outside of football um, to help us with that. So I'm looking forward to seeing how everybody responds to that when we get that out of the blocks. I can't wait to see that. That's so cool. From the outside, and I guess it's not just footy, it feels like a major point of transition for so many industries. Does it feel like that to you? You know, listening to the health experts, which, you know, I was obsessing with earlier on, but now I'm sort of like, don't know if I can listen to any more of that today. It's clear that the impact of this is going to stay with us for quite some time, particularly economically. Whatever investments are made now with a reduction in resources for so many people in all sorts of circumstances, it does... I think, put a lot of things in perspective. And I think what this does give us a chance to do, and again, a lot of people have been saying this, it's a great chance to take stock, think about what we do, how we do it. Are we using all of our resources um, to the best of our ability? Are we using our time and our efforts and our investments in a way that really reach across all sorts of social and economic divides. The real challenge will be not slipping back into old patterns as soon as life starts to feel back to what we used to consider normal. I think the reality is that this experience will have shaken a number of us up in all sorts of different ways. And so we're all going to have to be really mindful of the way that we respond and not rush back into old patterns that didn't necessarily serve us well and you know Mm -hmm. certainly for me thinking I wonder if people will be more prepared to use technology for meetings across the board compared to how frequently often it was difficult to arrange previously. I'm interested in the role of the head of mental health and chief psychiatrist are they still around and and what's their focus at the moment, if so? So the chief psychiatrist isn't at work at the moment, but our head of mental health, Dr Kate Hall, definitely is. Um, I've been working quite closely with her on a couple of uh, projects around, you know, culturally appropriate models or um, service providers for supporting mental health outcomes. Obviously, covid has really challenged all of us, the sense of isolation of, you know, and for athletes, you know, not being able to train after having sort of had a pre-season, all those AFLW players who didn't get to finish their season, how devastating that must have been. But at the same time, I guess, feeling the pressure not to appear to be overreaching around that when people are losing their lives and keeping it in perspective. But this is people's livelihoods, it's their passion, and suddenly that's all halted. So Dr Kate Hall has been giving advice across the industry about how to support people during this time, make sure that everyone's aware of the supports that are available and the different sorts of practices that they can utilise. One of the great things that Dr Hall's been doing is a weekly webinar for staff, whether they're stood down or not, um, around different areas that we can be thinking about that good for supporting, you know, positive mental health and well-being. Yeah, Kate's um, 
been a really important cog in the machine in terms of uh, giving us all advice about how to take care of ourselves and making sure that players and staff and families and clubs have got the right advice and the professional supports that they need. I won't take up too much more of your time, but I can't leave you without asking about Maddie Prisparkis. Yeah, just so incredibly elated for Maddie. I mean, what a wonderful achievement. Clearly, a lot of people had their eye on her and could Mm -hmm. see the emerging talent. Um, So she's had an outstanding start to her football career. But yeah, I also had a chance to FaceTime her to congratulate her in person the next day. And it was such a lovely experience to yarn with her, just see that amazing humility and genuine surprise Mm -hmm. that she could have achieved such accolades uh, at such a young age and uh, very humble, grateful and also open and very much herself, which was lovely to see and um, I hope that I get to celebrate in person with her at some point um, just to let her know how much it means and certainly sharing the news on my social media which is pretty limited but you know there was a lot of blackfellas who responded with a great deal of pride in seeing another blackfella achieve that kind of accolade in in our code and you know the moment that she shared with Gavin Wanganine I thought was really special and only the third to win a best and fairest uh amazing right you know as a minority in our own country in terms of a demographic representation anytime we see an aboriginal and torres strait islander person achieve at the highest level in their chosen field we all do feel a sense of shared pride i guess that comes from a history of being underrepresented overlooked dismissed ignored brutalized in some cases you know we've had a very tough existence in our own country given what's happened and so when you see that cultural resilience shine through in people you know, reaching such high standards of performance in whatever it is that they're doing, it is cause for celebration. Even if we've had absolutely nothing to do with the individual who's uh, reached this moment, you still do feel a sense of pride. And I think as well, at some level, you hope that it's part of breaking down the stereotypes and the bias that some people still see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as failures, as problems. It, It changes the narrative. That's always a positive thing. I'm pleased for Maddie to to have that experience and feel that community outreach towards her. Um, she seemed to really appreciate that. Before I let you go, what are you most looking forward to after all this dies down a bit? Uh, looking footy, I'm just looking forward to, you know, seeing some of my colleagues come back to work and working with them again on the work that we're passionate about and obviously seeing football games played again and you know cheering on my team I'm looking forward to that I think personally what I'm looking forward to is thinking about how I maintain a bit more balance because I feel like I'm working as hard as I was before but somehow I'm managing a bit more balance in terms of work and life and getting out for regular walks and those sorts of things so I'm looking forward to working out how to to do that when I'm back on the treadmill. And I think, yeah, just being around people that I care about and being able to have a drink with someone or, yeah, I'm missing people. So to reconnect interpersonally is important. I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, 
now that we've done this, we probably find that we do a lot of work like this. And I don't actually agree with that. I think that as human beings, we're hardwired for connection. Technology is a great asset, particularly at times like this, but um, I don't think anything can make up for what, what happens when you bring people together. Oh, thanks so much to Tanya Hosh for speaking to us and thanks to Rana for that lovely interview. In light of the fact that it would have been the Sir Doug Nichols round this week, some of the clubs have been putting out their Indigenous jumper designs this week, so you can find those on your social media. And later in the show, actually, Shelley Ware from our show is going to talk to one of the people who designed one of those jumpers, Neville Jetta. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been doing a new segment called The Fifth Quarter where we share with you all of the things we've been watching and reading and listening to while we're living in ISO. Tess, you've been promising for a few weeks that you were going to put together an intro for this segment. I wonder if you've had a crack. Look, I have no words to say this. I only have a song. So I'm going to try and talk to you about my feelings about this opener situation, but in song form. You all keep saying you've got something for me. (laughs) Chicago the nanny and a little bit of rap. I've been making an opener for weeks now. But I'll bin it and put myself to the test. It's time for the fifth quarter. A new thing that we do. One of these books or songs is gonna resonate with you. <laughs> oh god, there's more. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> Lucy's listening, Nick is reading and writing. Kate's watching Andy Murray at the net. Tess is saving when she should be changing. But I know I'm right. Have you guys seen Splash yet? (laughs) It's time for the fifth quarter. A new thing that we do. One of these shows or pods is gonna resonate with you. And then there's a little end, which I think you guys should do with me, really. Are you ready, gang? Start talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Tess. I think that's my favourite. That is hard to talk. Wow. Amazing work. I'm really sorry. I know you've been working on that for months. Brilliant. (laughs) Absolutely amazing and well done. Move over, Bernie Taupin. And we mentioned earlier that it would have been the Sir Doug Nichols round this week, celebrating everything to do with Indigenous culture. And so we thought we'd have a Indigenous culture themed fifth quarter. Lucy, tell us, what have you been reading or listening to, watching? Well, I don't know if I've ever shared this here, but I actually love books as much as I love sports. So I've been devouring books and I have another book recommendation for you this week. This one is last year's winner of the Miles Franklin Award Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. This book has some similarities to The Yield that I talked about last week, which is that basically it's about a young woman returning home. There is some family dynamics, but it is a darker book and it's a funny book. When she was asked about the book, Lukashenko said it is, and I'll quote here, a foray into the harder edges of Aboriginal life in country New South Wales. It is a book about class, but set away from the urban centres, a kind of hillbilly gothic. She goes on to say, 
say that the book was inspired by the black and queer women I know who've done jail time or who've barely escaped that fate by the skin of their teeth. Who are these people when they're not locked up, not demonised, not chucked away and not locked away by society? I wanted to write about the grassroots mob who are constantly living on the edge of things, the law, racist violence, various kinds of family implosions. I love this book and you should go and read it. Oh, wonderful. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) Nick, you've been reading as well. What have you, what's caught your eye? I'm in the middle of Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman, who's a Noongar author. It's Claire's debut novel. She does have another one out more recently, but this one was shortlisted for the Stella Prize in 2018. It's a really challenging novel. It subverts genre. It subverts traditional stories of uh, Indigenous survival. It really challenges our understanding of European colonisation, but it also messes with genre. And I can't actually talk too much about it without giving being a spoiler, but it does subvert narratives of historical dispossession. And I love that it's written from lots of different points of view. So you do have an escaped native, as they're called, natives and settlers control this world. And Jackie is has escaped from one of the missions and is on the run and he's starving, basically. It's a really brutal kind of world he's in. Um, and then you have the settlers. There's an actual, the, one of the, the police telling his own story of having to bring these natives into line and, and going hunting for Jackie. There's a nun at the missionary who reminds me a lot of Aunt Lydia from The Handmaid's Tale, which is challenging. But also there's just um, lots of sort of small pieces from other people and other worlds. It does actually fit in with the genre of speculative fiction while also being a colonial tale. I don't want to say much more about it because it really does. There's spoilers. But I liked what Claire said about it. She said that the entire purpose of writing Terra Nullius was to provoke empathy in people who had none. And I, I really think by diving into the narratives of the different people whose stories we don't generally hear from and and especially in colonial stories it's always been from the white settlers point of view even when they've attempted to tell indigenous stories i do love that we get underneath and, and inside and also forces us to place ourselves in that situation and that's all i'm going to say go out and read it's really really good couple of really interesting right. recommendations. Tess, what about you? What have you been engaging with? Well, I've been listening, as I want to do. A lot of people would have heard last year when Ian Darling brought out The Final Quarter, his amazing documentary that if you haven't seen yet, go and see that. Paul Kelly and Dan Sultan wrote a song for that documentary about Adam Goods's relationship with his mother, and it was called Every Day My Mother's Voice. Now, that is one recommendation. That song is truly beautiful. It's a stunning song, so you should listen to that. But a couple of months ago, Paul Kelly re-recorded that song live, did a performance with an Indigenous artist called Jess Hitchcock. By the way, I heard her singing on the ABC one day, and it was one of those performances where I had to stay in the car. She made me cry. Her voice made me cry. Just She's got such a stunning voice, and hearing her sing this song with Paul Kelly is just a wonder. So I'm going to play a snip for you now, but you have to go and source out the whole thing, which is available online now. I won't sing over the top too long. It's just stunning. It's um, 
It's really beautiful. And both versions, I'm loving them both. So now they're both in a playlist together. And I'm happy if either comes on. Source that out. It's gorgeous. It gave me goosebumps. Tess, well, one of the things that you, you may be aware of is that obviously museums and galleries around the world have had to close during the pandemic. But many of them have been offering free online courses, free exhibitions and so on. I just wanted to share with you something that the National Gallery of Victoria is doing because they have been putting artwork online, first of all, through something called NGV Every Day, and you can subscribe to their emails or check out their social media to learn more. They have been showcasing some Indigenous art. But one of the things they've done is moved, or they've moved a number of their exhibitions online, but one in particular that caught my eye is called Marking Time, and it's an an exhibition about Indigenous art. You can actually go online and do a virtual tour of the exhibition, and it feels like you're in the exhibition space. And I would encourage you to do it on your desktop computer if you have one at home, rather than on your phone, because you you can really look at the art up close. There's also a series of short videos that the NGV have put together by the exhibition's curator, Judith Ryan. She explains the purpose and the themes of the exhibition, and I'll just tell you what she says. Um, She says that this exhibition explores drawings and markings of figures, signs or text made on public surfaces across Indigenous Australia from rock face to now. The impulse to draw and make images is deeply embedded in Indigenous cultures throughout the world and is fundamental to the human experience. And it is quite a diverse exhibition. So it's online until the 14th of June at this stage. It's something to go and check out now because it's really beautiful, Mm. really gorgeous. That's great. Sounds good. I mentioned a little earlier that our very own Shelley Ware had sat down this week and caught up with Neville Jetta. She's had a chat to him about his design of an Indigenous jumper, but also what he's been listening to, watching and reading for the fifth quarter. Hi, Outer Sanctimers. I have Neville Jetta here from the Melbourne Football Club and he's going to talk to us about what the AFLM is looking like and what is it like to be back at training. Welcome to Outer Sanctum, Neville. Hey, Shelley. Thanks for having me. So what is it like? What does it feel like to be back at training? Yeah, it's good to be back. Obviously, there's a few restrictions and protocols that we need to follow which is uh, very important for us to be able to continue to train, but also the season kicking off. So the boys are trying their best. The club's doing their best to to keep the boys in line. So it's a funny one. It definitely feels weird going through different change rooms and having only seven uh, players in the change room and then going out and training with seven boys. So yeah, it's definitely a bit different, but we're, in, we're happy to be back at the moment and uh, wanting the season to, to get underway as soon as possible. Nice. So is everybody actually there or are you given different times to come to training? Yeah, different times. Uh, we'll have three groups of seven in the morning from 8 to tw- eight to 12 and then 12.30 to, to 3, 3 p.m. Another three groups of seven will rock up um, with three different change rooms. One coach per group all doing different things at different times and uh, even using different side, different parts of the oval. So we even got our own footies for, for each group so no one's sort of crossing over and, and doing stuff like that. So it, it's it's um, a lot of work, a lot of preparation from what I can see at the moment. Everyone's doing a great job. Oh, good. Well, they're putting a lot of effort in to keep everyone safe, which sounds good. But the reason I have you on this week is because I wanted to say that it would have been the Sadad Nichols round, this mm. dream time at the G, and I'm still sucking about it. It's one of my favourite rounds of the year, and I just love being a part of it. I usually get to be the MC on the MCG and get to see everything nice and close. You know, it's a bit sad that we're not having it on. I thought we'd get you on and talk about what's been your favourite moment of the <laughs> Nichols rounds. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely one of my favourite rounds of the year. Uh, we're a lot of different Guernseys that represent a lot of different things. The biggest thing has been uh, representing us Indigenous people and, and, and our culture. 
and sharing that with wider Australia. So um, probably some of the things I'll look back on Indigenous Round is probably the, the first Dreamtime game. Yeah. And just, just seeing how everyone embraced it, got behind it, the players, both football clubs to start with, and probably the most memorable moment for me was, was Michael Long walking to the MCG and, and, and how proud I felt during that time. I've done some of those walks too and done the long walk and walked to the MCG with him and it's um, been a real honour to do them and it does make you proud when all the long walkers walk up onto the, the MCG and the crowd's cheering for them, so it's a really special. <laughs> for me, one of my favourites was when um, we saw Sydney Stack when he actually came out out of the, felt like it was a big surprise and actually was last year when he was part of the war cry at the start of the game with mm-hmm. the Richmond Football Club, so... I um, just loved that and I loved the acknowledgement from the crowd and how proud they were as well and how much they enjoyed it. But you mentioned that everybody has really embraced the um, Sir Doug Nichols round. Do you feel like it's grown over the years? Yeah, it definitely has. I think the probably the first part that's grown the most is within the football clubs. The players have done a great job, first thing, Indigenous players to be able to not only educate their teammates but the players, the, the, the stories of staff. Um, and the whole club, which sort of flows onto their supporters to share stories, not only with the people within the club, but also outside the club via just talking to people, but then also through a jumper, which obviously is pretty easy to see on game day. Yeah, and talking of jumpers, I was lucky enough to design the Carlton Football Club's Indigenous Round Jumper last year. And you're right, we did. We shared the story of it through talking to the actual players about what the jumper meant. Lots of stories were done where the community also learnt the story of the jumper. But you were going to design, or you did design, this year's Melbourne Indigenous Round Jumper, and it hasn't gone through. Can you tell us a little sneaky bit about it, or are we still saving it in hope that they do actually have the jumper in what, who knows what this season will look like? We're still saving it in hope it's going to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, still saving it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'll, I'll... very, very honoured to be able to create a design that, that'll be put on the Melbourne Football Club Guernsey. Something I'm very proud of. Something that I want to be able to everyone to have a, a connection with that'll reach right across Australia and, and it has more of a, an education piece to it that, that'll get people to look, not only put the jumper on, but ask questions and have other people ask questions about what they got on it and sort of go through it and, and get an understanding. So uh, that's probably the biggest piece that I'll probably tell you right now is it's a bit more of an education piece, something that we do day to day within our workplaces, within our community is sharing. So just trying to use that aspect and put on our channel, run in our Guernseys. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully we do wear it at some point. But if not, hopefully we're still able to, to do something to represent the round, whether that, that'll be by media and then um, I'd love to see some some old Indigenous players running around on my TV, but also try and get some vision from the Indigenous camp games where we had the All-Stars versus, I think it was Adelaide Crows in my first year, which I, which I didn't get to play, which I was pretty shattered about. But being only 18, I, I was nowhere near being able to fit in that 22. I think we played against Richmond. Um, there was a Bulldogs game up in Darwin as well. So there's a few games that not a lot of people would have watched, but I know they're all very, very exciting. Well, let's hope we actually see you run around. Those games sound great and it would be great to watch them, but I'd much prefer to watch you run around. And I'd also love to see you running around in your um, jumper that you've designed this year. I'd imagine that's what the AFL will have planned. Otherwise, we'll just have to save it for 2021. It'll be a beautiful jumper. I can only imagine. So what are your hopes for the Sir Doug Nichols round in the future? Uh, my hope is for it to continue to grow. Right now, as an Indigenous player, the point where the clubs take control, 
and not having us push us to the front all the time mm-hmm. as Indigenous players speaking about the round. I want our captains, our coaches, our CEOs, our presidents speaking how proud they are about the round, what they've learnt, what they want to learn about Indigenous culture and what they want to share with the not only AFL community but their own community that they live in is something that's pretty powerful. Absolutely. This is our history and our culture of our whole entire of Australia. So mm-hmm. embracing it. And I know that there's the Doug Nichols round and Dreamtime at the G certainly helped towards making that happen. So Neville, what have you been watching, listening and reading to for our fifth quarter today? Probably the first thing that I've been watching uh, is the Last Dance documentary of uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls when they uh, obviously did a three-peat in the early 90s and then sort of later uh, in the 90s as well. It's been, uh, been very interesting. Grew up a Bulls fan, born in the 90s, so that's all I knew, Bulls uh, and Michael Jordan. And, and to see sort of what they went through, the team dynamics, having uh, people like Dennis Rodman and um, Scotty Pippen and, and the rest of the, the team, but also how someone like Phil Jackson was able to sort of make it all work and his philosophies, not only from being an NBA, NBA coach, but where he was born and being brought into a American Indian tribe and sort of the, the values that he took away from that is pretty interesting and how that sort of relates to a team sport is, is pretty, pretty pretty amazing really and how he's able to keep these people sort of towards one goal, especially having someone so determined like Michael headbutton with everyone because they, they didn't see it his way. What I've been reading is Jonathan Thurston, his autobiography came out um, start of the year and been sitting sitting in the office for a while and finally pulled it out and got halfway through at the moment but uh, sort of see his journey and sort of the challenges he faced as a young player sort of being sort of too small not strong enough not fast enough uh, the doubts that he had as a player and then sort of where he almost uh, went off the rails and almost didn't play NRL at all and working his backside off and then becoming one of the greatest NRL players there's ever been so it's definitely a few things that I've sort of wanted to do during my time away from the game is, is look at where I can take little bits and pieces from and these two things have definitely been awesome for me to keep not only my inspiration up but add a few things to, to myself as a, as a player but also a person. Thank you so much to Shelley and Neville for that wonderful chat. That brings us to the end of the show. <laughs> In the MCG will let me do the sound effects when they bring football back. I hope so. Every time Collingwood get a goal, I'll just play this really loudly. Imagine canned laughter. Oh, I'd I'd sign up for that. I'd sign up for that. But look, it's yes, it is a boo. It is the end of our show. But I also just want to say that we're going to have we're going to take next week off. We need a break before the season gets back underway. But we will still be on our socials and everything, so you can reach out and engage with us that way. Thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you to Tanya Hosh. Thank you to Neville Jeddah. Thank you to Rana and Shelley for getting involved from home, and to all of our listeners who keep on engaging with us. There's only one thing left to say. <laughs> Go footy! Go, Go footy! footy. Go footy. <laughs>Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.